Hello, and welcome to this Rash Decision podcast, where we look at skin-related issues, conditions, and treatments in an interesting and informed way. I'm Dr. Roger Henderson, GP with a long-standing interest in this area of health. And I'm Dr. George McCreeve. I was also a GP, though I've now retired from my practice, and I was the chair of the Dermatology Council for England. Now today, George and I are going to be talking about acne, and as we all know, this is a huge area with our skin-related conditions workload. So we're going to be looking at what we should know about it before we look to treat it. The treatment of acne itself will be the subject of our next podcast in about two weeks' time, so make sure you check that one out. I can give you a quick heads up already and tell you it's an absolute cracker. But first of all, George, I think it's a really good idea to talk about the etiology of acne um, because this informs our treatment choices and also it's really far from simple, isn't it? It's fascinating, to be honest. Uh, Acne is caused by a combination of genetic makeup. So, for example, if your father is more important than your mother as far as severity of acne is concerned, the male genes are more likely to trigger acne. And then an interplay between that and your hormones, often unbalanced hormones early in teenage years. And that's why we see acne particularly in teenagers. But what's going on in acne? Well, well these hormones drive, in somebody genetically prone, increased sebum production by the sebaceous glands. And that sebum is not only increased in volume, it's thicker. They also increase the, the number of cells around the infundibular opening of the pilosebaceous unit. As you know, every hair follicle has its own individual grease gland, this, the pilosebaceous unit, and that becomes blocked. And what's going on is a degree of seborrhea. Now, anything in the body that blocks, whether it's your middle ear cavity, your sinuses, your appendix, your fallopian tubes, or your pilosebaceous unit, once it's blocked, you get bacteria growing behind it. And the bacteria that grows in this situation is the cutibacterium acnes. We used to call it propionobacter acnes. It's an obligate anaerobe. And that then causes the inflammatory lesions we see. So it's seborrhea, increased cells falling into that grease, blocking the hair follicle opening, the pore, and causing an open comedone. Then colonization causing the inflammatory lesions which can go on to pustules or closed comedones and then the more inflammatory lesions that we see. What about the factors affecting acne? We start to stray into areas of myth and disinformation. I have to say, especially with with social media on, on the rise and rise, it's amazing what patients will sit in front of you and tell you what they think about works for their acne and, and what they've tried and what they, they, they shouldn't try. And even in our lifetimes as, as medical students and doctors, George, that has flip-flopped. I'm thinking of things like like diet here. Well, yes, that's very interesting. Like me, I'm sure you were taught that you should dispel any myths that diet has a part to play in acne. And you should go out of your way to tell patients it, it doesn't play a part. And would you believe it, that was based on some terrible studies. Fullerton had four patients who after a week reported no difference. And Anderson, I think, had about 70 students who he either gave a candy bar to or something else. And after four weeks, there was no significant difference. 
Now, studies like that would never get close to getting published in a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, these were really shockingly bad studies, but for some reason, the profession leapt onto that evidence, you can call it evidence, and denied patients who said to them that they thought their, uh, their diet was aggravating it. We, we all see patients who say, I had some chocolates and the next day my acne was worse. There've been some more scientific papers done this century, both looking at the Ake hunter-gatherers in, in Paraguay and the Kitivan tribe in Papua New Guinea, where there's, for example, 2,000 individuals. They eat a diet of fish and fruit, and they have no acne at all. If they're given a westernized diet, they get acne, which then gets better when they go back to their normal healthy diet. So it's only junk foods and things, anything that causes a, a, a glycemic load. So particularly cocoa and sugars, which are rapidly absorbed. Interestingly, ice cream can increase acne fourfold. And whey powder, a lot of skim milk, because it's so thin, is fortified with whey powder. And individuals who sometimes go to gyms and want to build up their bodies, they're drinking four pints of milk a day, but, but they don't want to put on too much weight other than muscle weight. They will drink skim milk. That's a huge amount of whey powder. And these sugars essentially increase in insulin growth factor one, which then stimulates the production of androgens. So, yep, I think it does matter. Nice in their guidance for acne last year acknowledged that DART had a part to play in many patients with acne. But they went on to say that we would not suggest doctors spend time discussing it with patients because it's too complicated. <laughs> I ask you, you know, it's not complicated to say to a patient, do you find eating chocolates or eating a lot of ice cream makes things worse? Or are you drinking a lot of skim milk? doesn't take me very long. They went on to say, furthermore, we're anxious that discussing diet in a young person might trigger an eating disorder. Come on. Mm. It's a bit like saying, I didn't want to ask this patient about suicidal ideation because they were depressed, you know, that that's going to cause them to commit suicide. I find it yeah. astonishing that that was the view that they took, but they did acknowledge that diet plays a part. I've been talking about hormones, certainly androgenic hormones will make acne worse. So in particular, anabolic steroids. If somebody is taking anabolic steroids from the gym or wherever, and they've got acne, which is usually the case, there's no point coming to see me because nothing I can do is going to make a lot of difference. They need to be off the steroids and not plan to get back on them again for our treatments to have any impact. The first generation combined pills make acne worse. All combined pills have ethanol estradiol from 20, 30, or some of them 35 micrograms. But what distinguishes one from another is whether it's an androgenic progesterone like levonorgestrone or norethisterone in rigovedron or binovum, for example, trinovum, or a, a, a progesterone like digestidine and desogestrel, which are usually marginally anti-androgenic and usually slightly help or a combined pill such as one that contains drospirinone or ciproterone acetate. Yeah. Estrogen makes acne better. So what you want in acne is an estrogen dominant pill and a non-androgenic progesterone. So the most estrogen dominant pills have 35 micrograms and you want then to have something like drospirinone, which is a spironolactone-like progesterone. In America, spironolactone is licensed for acne. 
It's not in this country, but I have used it for acne. And you need to use quite high doses to be effective, like 100, 200, or even more milligrams a day. And it's therefore limited by gynecomastia and mastodynia. But drosparinone is asparinolactone, progesterone in things like Yachella and Lucette and Yasmin. Or you can go for a true anti-testosterone, ciproterone acetate. So I'll be talking about treatment next time in more detail. So I think this is a perfect time for us to take the opportunity just to say a few words about our kind sponsor, Aproderm, and their range of emollients and barrier creams. As we know, everyone's skin is unique. In many ways as a GB, it has often been tricky to find an emollient that immediately suited a person and their condition. We know it's not as simple as one condition, one type of emollient. It's often a case of a patient trying an emollient and then going back and forth with several prescriptions and visits to us and other practices or other doctors, which is not ideal for them or for us. Fortunately, Aproderm have developed a genius solution to simplify the whole process of selecting the emollient for both patients and healthcare professionals. Their Aproderm emollient starter pack I love, contains all four of their emollients. And each of those has a unique consistency and a unique level of hydration. So the point here is that with just one prescription, uh, we can give our patients the opportunity to try each one and find the one that works best for them. Now, obviously this gives patients choice. It aids compliance, vitally important, whilst at the same time, saving time, money, and most importantly, fewer visits for the patient. Now, as a GP, that ticks every box and it sounds like a perfect answer for me. So because of that, I've been a huge advocate of the Apoderm range for a while now, and it's such a great range of products. I actually use them to moisturize my skin. All are suitable from birth, uh, and they're free from common irritants and sensitizers, which is so important these days. I have to say that I now love them even more. So if you see patients with dry skin conditions and are a prescriber, simply prescribe the Aproderm Emollient Starter Pack, which incidentally also comes with a handy patient self-care guide. It's a game changer for the world of dermatology. Stress definitely plays a part. I'm sure like me, you've seen patients before doing a webinar or presentation or an exam or an interview, you get spots. And we all know that stress does play a part. Cosmetics can certainly clog up pores if people are using thick cosmetics, and we'll probably come on to that. Mm. And UV light, we know that a little bit of sensible, non-burning sunlight definitely seems to help acne. When I uh, see a, a very muscular, well-built um, young man uh, in my surgery with acne, um, it's a default question uh, exactly. to ask them, you know, um, do you take anabolic steroids? Um, I, I almost go straight to the chase and say, how often do you take yeah, anabolic steroids? Exactly. But one, yeah. or two, one or two don't. But the rise of body dysmorphia um, in young men driven by social media is certainly something that I never saw at the start of my medical career and now see quite a bit. And I think it's probably under not over-reported and as you say that one of the problems with any young man taking anabolic steroids is whatever we throw at them it's not going to work because those steroids are going to overpower any possible treatment that we could throw at them and and you sometimes have to have the 
the, the stern words, you know, do you want to keep taking steroids or do you want your acne, but you can't have both. And usually they, they'll say, well, I like my acne better because my girlfriend doesn't like the look of it. But then often when they lose their muscle mass and they tend to find they sometimes go back on it. But it's always yeah. worth asking that question with someone with acne who is well built, very muscular, always think anabolic steroids. Now, many patients of mine do believe that acne is acne is acne. But one of the things I have learned over too many years of treating them is that there's a massive range of presentations, including the no need to treat so mild to the Roaccutane specialist referral level with horrendous scarring, which I think we've failed if we get to the scarring point, and also clinical findings. So there's this massive sort of A to Z range, isn't there? Greasy skin, distribution, pigmentation, scarring, morphology. We've got to treat each patient as they sit in front of us rather than just lumping everyone with acne into the same boat. Yeah, so do most patients with acne have a degree of seborrhea, so their skin looks quite shiny and it looks oily. And of course, that's quite good for dry skin conditions like eczema and so on. But you'll notice that the patient has a rather oily, greasier complexion. Acne, 99% of patients with acne, it'll affect their face. I say almost 100%. And about 80% it affects the front of the chest and around about 80, 90% affects the back. Right down sometimes to the, the buttocks. It can go right the way down there. And I think of acne as being inflammatory or non-inflammatory. So when non-inflammatory, we're talking about open comedones, these blocked pores, just basically dead cells filled with melanin that have fallen into the sebum and blocked that pore. And you sometimes see that in young teenagers or even younger children aged 11 or 12. And if you do see significant open comedone disease at that age, it is a marker for more severe disease to come. And then you get the more inflammatory end of the spectrum with papules and pustules, and then it can go on to nodules and cysts. And of course, that was likely to heal with scarring. Sometimes you see very mild acne, very few, just one or two inflammatory lesions, but each one of them has been attacked and the patient has excavated and torn it out to try and get rid of it. this spot. They've picked it and pulled away at it. And that will cause scarring in a condition we call acne excoriae. And then typically in darker skin, in the darker skin types, the inflammation can cause quite marked post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Now, I can't remember the last time I investigated someone with acne unless I was thinking this acne is actually secondary to polycystic ovarian syndrome. I know adrenal hyperplasia could do it. I don't think I've ever seen a case, but pretty much I'm fairly safe in saying that most of us don't go out of our way to investigate acne straight off the bat, do we? No, I don't think so. Those are the two main situations. I obviously had a young man and I was suspicious that he was still taking anabolic steroids. I would not embark on treatment until I'd done the tests to check that he wasn't. So I'd do a quick test there for testosterone. But no, I think polycystic ovarian syndrome is so common, affecting perhaps even one in four women of childbearing years, that even in my non-overweight women, if they got persistent acne, or even acne, I would just be thinking, are we dealing here with PCOS, and then address that. 
Yeah. There, yeah. there are two types of adrenal hyperplasia. There's the classic, which is exceedingly rare, one in 30 to 50,000 people. But there's the non-classical adrenal hyperplasia, which possibly affects up to half a percent of the population. And they, unlike the classical, don't present with adrenal failure, but instead they present with hyperandrogenism, massive hercities, um, male pattern baldness, and severe acne. So I specifically think about that in my individuals whose acne is particularly recalcitrant or has come back after a course of isotretinoin. And it's very easy to test for. You just do a 9AM 17-hydroxy progesterone blood test. It's very cheap. And of course, if that's abnormal, it's quite possible that they won't be able to mount a good adrenal response to a severe stress situation. So were they to have a major operation or a heart attack at a later stage in their life, if they know they've got adrenal hyperplasia, the non-classical pattern, maybe the treatment they receive will be, they'll be onto the case faster than if that weren't the case. So they could have an Addisonian type crisis, I suspect. So you're doing them a double favor and, and managing their acne in that situation, if they've got non-classical adrenal hyperplasia, is very simple. You just give them the steroid replacement that they need and their acne melts away. So it is, it is rare, yes. But it, the way it manifests is with extreme hirsutes in somebody with resistant and recalcitrant acne. That's a really helpful aid memoir, that one, because I think that's one we often forget with all the, the common things being common. But that's a really useful one to close this little chat off, I Actually, think. You know, I you recently chaired a, a whole day's conference on rare conditions. I think well, the message from Dave Hartley, there are so that, that, many that, that, rare conditions that we commonly encounter something less common. That's right. One of the statistics that absolutely rocked me back is that one in 17 people in the UK have a condition classified as rare. Not yeah. one in 1,700, not one in 17,000, <laughs> one in 17, and that really puts it in perspective. So, so just thinking yeah. about adrenal hyperplasia in, in our acne it's patients very important is a good to remain alert to that possibility at all times. Absolutely. So, George, and I do hope you found this chat about this most common of skin problems interesting, and you found the overview helpful, and you've remembered some things you may have forgotten and hopefully it's allowed you to have a little more confidence next time you're in your surgery and speaking to someone sitting in front of you with acne. So Roger and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing the crucial area of how best to treat acne, including when to refer to secondary care. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Aproderm, for all the help in putting these rash decision podcasts together. We couldn't have done it without them. So until the next time, it's goodbye from George. Goodbye. And as always, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.